one of the, uh, the themes in the Gospel of John that is telegraphed early in the Gospel is the rejection of Jesus Christ by the Jewish people. Uh, we see it as early as John chapter 1, verse 11, where the description is of Jesus' coming, and it says, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, believing in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. At the outset of the Gospel of John, it is clear that the Jewish people will not embrace this first coming of their Messiah. There will not be a, a, a general acceptance of him, but rather a widespread rejection of Jesus. And John is indicting his fellow Jews at this point, pointing out to us that Jesus was born a Jew. He is sent as the Messiah. He is from the line of David. He is the one that Jews have been anticipating for centuries. And yet, much of John's gospel, especially as we move into chapters 5 through 12, will revolve around this theme of rejection of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 5, there are statements about uh, the persecution or efforts to persecute Jesus Christ. There is the desire stated to kill him. In John chapter 6, there is the, the discussion of the idea that the expectation of this Messiah was that he would be a political rescuer, that he would free them from the dominion of, of Roman rule, that he would be sort of a political savior, and the realization that he was coming preaching this redemption, this rescue from sin, was not what they expected, and so they began to grumble, and many who had followed him chose to leave and turn away. At the end of John chapter 6, you have Jesus looking to his disciples and going to you too want to leave based on the exodus of the crowd. He was not the Messiah that they wanted. He didn't do what they wanted. And so this rejection of Jesus becomes a theme, not only stated there in chapter 1, we see it as part of the reason for the pessimism at the end of chapter 2, when Jesus has been proclaiming the, the truth in Jerusalem, when he has been ministering and performing signs, and, and crowds have been gathering around him in Jerusalem, and yet at the end of John chapter 2 and verse 24, it says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew that large crowds of onlookers should not be interpreted as large crowds of committed followers who were submitting their lives to him, who were regarding him as savior and who were following him as such and repenting of their sins. Many in those crowds were there to see a show, to, to see this worker of miracles, to see this one who could do signs, and to see what, what he might do next, and, and perhaps to see if there would be something that would be sort of self-useful, beneficial in some way, that he would do something that would, would help the people there in the crowd. That, that warning of rejection is important because I think it helps set us up for where we are this morning at the end of John chapter 4. Just to, again, set the stage, at the beginning of John chapter 4, Jesus was traveling from the region of Judea, headed up back to Galilee. Just to, to remind ourselves, here's Judea down here, there's Jerusalem. Jesus travels up through Samaria, stops in Sukkar there, and we're going to see the towns mentioned this morning of Capernaum and Cana and Nazareth up in Galilee, the, the region that uh, Jesus was raised in. Down in Judea, in Jerusalem, there had begun to be this hostility from the religious authorities. They had begun to um, see Jesus as more of a threat as the crowds grew, and so in avoiding the kind of confrontation that would inevit inevitably and eventually lead to his execution, this was not the time for that, Jesus leaves the area, and on his way back up to Galilee, stops in Samaria, 
And, and we've read about this over the last couple of weeks, how the Jewish people looked on the people of Samaria with disdain. They were not pure Jews, even though they, they, they sort of pretended to be in some way. As far as the, the Jews were concerned, the Samaritans were not uh, to be accepted as the same. They were looked down upon. And yet Jesus goes there, stops there, has a conversation with a woman that leads to her going back to her village and saying, maybe we found the Messiah. And there is then this great work of God in saving a number of the Samaritan people and coming to faith and coming out to listen to Jesus. And they urge him to stay. And so he stays there and ministers to them for two days. And then he continues on to Galilee. If we pick up in verse 43, John 4, verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Those two verses, 44 and 45, are two of the most difficult in the Gospel of John in terms of interpretation because they seem to be offering some, some at best, odd thoughts, perhaps even contradictory uh, there are a lot of questions about exactly what's meant here. First, in verse 44, which starts with that word for, F-O-R, which makes it sound like then Jesus departed for Galilee, verse 43, after two days in Samaria, he departs for Galilee for or because he himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So the indication seems to be, he leaves Samaria to go to Galilee because in his hometown he is not honored, which again sounds a little odd to us. And then in verse 45, the question becomes, what kind of welcome is this that's being described? Because it says when he gets there, he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. What, what sort of reception did they give him? Because if you follow the train of thought here, you have Jesus uh, seeming to go to um, Galilee, to a place where... It, it's described as being a place where he's not receiving honor, and yet he goes there for that purpose, seemingly, verse 44, and then they do welcome or receive him. Verse 45 starts with so, better yet, therefore, so it would indicate a consequence or a result, which makes it all the more confusing, because here you've got the statement in verse 44 that Jesus says, they show no honor to him in his hometown, therefore, when he gets there, they welcome him which seems again to us like a contradiction. Interpreters do all sorts of ideas, go through different scenarios of what all this can mean. I'm not going to jump through all of the different options. I'll give you what I, I think seems to be truest to the text. And that is, first of all, starting with that phrase in verse 44. If you've read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you've seen that before. Jesus saying a prophet is without honor in his homeland or hometown. It's recorded in all of the other Gospels, Matthew 13, 57, Mark 6, 4, Luke 4, 24. And in each instance, it's very specifically tied to a circumstance. Jesus is in Nazareth, in the town that he was raised in. He has gone to the synagogue there, and he is preaching there. And the Jewish response could largely be summed up as, wait a minute, this is the carpenter's son. We know this guy. He's just an ordinary guy. Who is he now to come and speak to us as if he has been sent from God, as if he is now the spokesman for God? And, and, and so in all of those contexts, it is Jesus remarking about the fact that it should be no surprise that back in his hometown, of all places, the, the attitude is one of coolness at best, skepticism, if not outright rejection at this point. 
John, when he writes his gospel, is the last chronologically. And so John doesn't go into the details about the, the Nazareth synagogue experience when he quotes that statement in verse 44, Jesus himself testified a prophet has no honor in his hometown. I think it's fair to say that John is presuming that his readers know a little bit of the background. They, they know what has happened previously because Matthew, Mark, and Luke have all recorded that. And, and, and they know that, that indeed this is a... Um, a reaction that is common, it seems like, in Galilee. And so he is reciting what, what is already kind of a known response. What he's really saying there in, in chapter 4, verse 44, is that this rejection of Jesus is, is really, it's a known thing, and it is a restatement of the promise given back in John chapter 1. This is simply consistent with what we've seen in John chapter 1, and that is, yes, Jesus is going there, but the realization is that even in that hometown, he is not embraced as the Messiah. As it was foretold, they would largely harden their hearts toward him. The point, though, being he goes to Galilee with that in mind because that is the will of God. That is still God's plan for him to go back to the Galilean region, for him to preach to the people there, to, to have some come indeed to faith, but to, to largely be rejected. What, what John 4.44 is doing is helping to introduce us to this theme that will come up again and again in chapters 5 through 12 when we see Jesus do miraculous things. And, and having not known the story or having not been prepared for it, might wonder why is it that when he does these things and teaches with such power, he is consistently rejected by the very people he came to as their Messiah. Why is it that they turn from him, that they seek to kill him and walk away from him best. And so really John is just stating here what, what we already know, and that is he departs for Galilee because that is indeed the will of God, that even in going to Galilee, there is still the awareness that that will ultimately lead to a mass rejection of him by the Jews who live there. So what about verse 45 then when it says, well, therefore, when he came, they welcomed him. I, I, I think the, the thought in that, it probably lies in that word welcomed and in what John says after that. There's a couple of different Greek words for welcomed. This is not the same as in John 1.11 when it says that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. The Greek word there is paralambano, the idea of taking something to myself. I am not just accepting it as for what it is, but I am actually taking it and receiving it for myself, taking it as my own possession. Here it's the word dekamai, which could include that, but it has a much broader range of meanings. Accepting something, picking something up, you know, kind of simpler terms. I think John gives us the, the description here that helps us understand this when he says that they welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. It is that last part of John 4.45 that should remind us of that last verse in John 2, where it talks about how Jesus knows what's in man. He doesn't entrust himself to man. He doesn't look at all these crowds and go, wow, they're all receiving me, but rather he looks at them with a sense of knowing that these large crowds are there for all sorts of mixed motives, many of which are just there to kind of see the show. And so what's happening here in, in John 4 is, yes, they welcome him, but probably in the same way that, that we might see if, if Kirk Cousins or Bryce Harper walked through Walmart and, and the crowd welcomed them and they were excited to see them because they were celebrities, because they were special people that people wanted to see. 
That's kind of the, the sort of celebrity welcome here. It's not embracing Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, as the Messiah who has come to rescue his people from their sin. It is because of what they had seen in Jerusalem and had seen him do signs that they now go, well, maybe now he'll do some, some things here. Maybe we'll get to see some of these miracles. Remember the things we told you we saw him do down in Jerusalem? Well, watch him here and, and see what he does here. In large part, these are sort of curiosity seekers. And, and, and we will see this in, in Jesus' rebuke in verse 48. He will make it abundantly clear that the welcome in Galilee was not the reception of people embracing their Savior, but rather that it was sort of a superficial fascination based on what they had seen Jesus do and hoped to see more of. They were very happy to have him there and to watch, but they weren't ready to bow the knee. So let me read on. That's, those, that's sort of opening the, the setting for us. Verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And pause there a minute. If you're familiar with the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, this may sound at least reminiscent of a different story, which is the Roman centurion who comes to Jesus for the healing of his servant. These are two different stories, different in identity. The one was a, a, a Gentile centurion. This one is described rather as an official. The, the word that's used would have the idea of an official for a king, somebody who served in a king's court. So presumably this is a guy who worked for, in some way, Herod Antipas, who was sort of the, the figurehead that the Romans allowed to be in charge of that region of Galilee, whose family line came from out of Judea, and, and were kind of put in charge as puppets, if you will, of the Roman government. This guy is a servant, perhaps, in that court. Presumably he is a Jew, and presumably he is wealthy and influential at this point. He has a lot going for him. But all that he knows at this moment is he has a dying child, and he is utterly helpless to do anything about that. And so he travels now from Capernaum down to Cana to plead with Jesus. The verb in verse 47, when it says he went to him and asked him, indicates really a persistence in his pleading. He believes that his son's death is imminent, and he does what any parent would do at this point. He tries whatever he can, and what he has been told, and perhaps what he has seen himself in Jerusalem is, this guy may be able to do something, and he goes to him and he pleads for Jesus, come back with me to Capernaum and save my son's life. Verse 48, so Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Let me stop there. Probably not the response the guy anticipates at that point, and actually a pretty startling response. Important thing to see there is, is both the, the verbs in there are plural verbs, and so what he is saying in verse 48, it says to him, but he is saying, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. Point being, he is not pointing a rebuke at this individual man as much as he is speaking to the larger crowd that has gathered, the, the show-me sort of crowd that has come around to see what will happen and see what will Jesus do. And Jesus now responds to them and rebukes because they are not there to worship the Son of God. They are there to see something spectacular. They're there to get a story that they can go and tell other people that this is what they saw. 
Again, remember, many of these same people had seen what he had done in Jerusalem. They were miracles that were meant to establish his authority as the Messiah, but they were taken really as interesting signs, as fascinating things that didn't necessarily bring all of these people to believe. Many of them continued to have this attitude of, prove yourself. We want to see something. They were not ready to embrace him as Savior. And so Jesus takes that moment to expose the, the hearts, if you will, the motives, if you will, of the crowd when he says, you all just, you're not going to believe a thing unless you see something, unless I prove myself in some way to you. In fact, he uses what in the, the Greek is a double negative when it says there, you all um, will, will not believe unless you see. It's like not, not in the Greek. Now, I, I know English grammar, two negatives make a positive, not in the Greek. In the Greek, this is a way of emphasis. This is a way of, in a language that doesn't have exclamation points, of putting an exclamation point and saying, you all will never believe unless you see signs. So this is as strong and emphatic as a rebuke as he could give against this attitude of prove it. We'll believe maybe if you show us something. And Jesus is, is hitting them with this crowd that's demanding proof. So then verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Here's another place just kind of sidetracking for a moment, where this differs from the Roman centurion. If you remember the story of the Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8, the, the, Jesus says to him when his servant is sick, I'll go with you, take me to your house. And the centurion's response is, oh, no, no, I am not worthy to have you come into my house. You just say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion explains, I know what it's like to command authority, to, to have uh, men subject to me. All you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. In this case, the, the official, the nobleman, if you will, in John 4, is wanting Jesus to come with him. It's probably about a 16-mile or so trip, four hours or so as they're riding back. And he wants Jesus, come with me. And he said it twice. He said it before Jesus' rebuke there in verse 47, asked him to come down and heal his son. And when Jesus finishes, he comes right back with saying, please come down before my child dies. Jesus' answer to him is both comforting and testing at the same time when Jesus says to him, go, it's done. Your child will live. I, I, I sort of think, at least, there's a little bit of a pause between go, your son will live, and the man believed the word that, that Jesus said. You can imagine what a test that is at that moment. Part of a people that have come to see Jesus do something, and Jesus says to him, okay, go, he'll live. And you have to imagine there was at least a second or two there where the guy had to stop and go, really? Is that, you don't have to come and touch him or, or see anything? And yet it says he responds with faith. Here's a crowd of people who have largely come to see something, to see proof about this local guy, to see if he can show who he really is. And all that Jesus really gives him is, you're going to have to believe my word, your son will live. Verse 50 says he believed and went on his way. But there's more that helps us understand his faith, this nobleman's faith. Verse 51, as he was going down, Canaan now to Capernaum, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, 
Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Second sign, probably John's way of reminding us of the Cana, the, the, the water into wine that he mentioned previously. There were other signs intervening in Jerusalem, but this in terms of the story in Galilee and the ministry there becomes the second sign. I would suggest to you that the word that really stands out in this passage we just read is in verse 52 when the servant says, yesterday. That word should jump out at us in, in terms of when that healing took place. Yesterday afternoon, the seventh hour, which would be about one o'clock in the afternoon. Suppose you have come down from Capernaum to Cana, knowing all the while from when you left your house that your son could be dead at any moment, and you now get down there and it's one o'clock in the afternoon and the one you have put your last hope in says, go, your son will live. I don't know what you would do at that moment, but I would hightail it back home because I'd want to see. I mean, I'd, I'd want to touch and feel and know that, that this was real. Again, it being one in the afternoon, it was a journey that he presumably could have made, but he doesn't. The man did believe it, and, and in fact, he didn't travel back. For whatever reason, he didn't rush home, and we can only conjecture at that point. One possibility that he had worn out his horse in the journey in the morning, just rushing to get down to where he heard Jesus was and couldn't do it. Another being that his work required him to stop somewhere along the way, that he had to carry on business that he was required to do. But whatever the case, he slept somewhere that night. No text, no email, no phone call, nothing that said, hey, you can sleep good tonight, all is well. And instead, he stays somewhere at night, and it is then the next day that his servant comes and says, Sir, you're not going to believe this, but your son lives. His fever broke. And not only does the nobleman believe it, but it's, he's looking for a certain answer here when he says to, to his servant, What time did that take place? And the servant says, Well, actually, it was like right around 1 in the afternoon. It was the seventh hour. And, and, and you can see clearly from the text that, that the nobleman knew that, believed that. It, it simply confirmed what he had already believed, and that is that he had trusted Jesus and taken him at his word. And now he goes back and he ministers that truth to his family, and, and the picture here is indeed of his whole household coming to faith. It's a remarkable account, particularly when you put it in context. You've got on the front end of this the, the experience in Samaria, where Jesus has gone and preached, and there are no signs, there are no miraculous things, there is simply Jesus speaking to a woman about her need for salvation, her need for forgiveness. And God takes the power of the spoken word and not only brings her to faith, but sends her back to her town where she tells others, and even her testimony is used. Her weak, frail testimony of come see this man, God uses to already save people, and then he brings others out to Jesus, and more are saved as a result. More put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And yet, then you come to Galilee, where John is setting the, the, the scene for us as essentially a superficial, show-me-signs sort of crowd, prove to us who you are. We're not really all that convinced. We, we've heard you preach before, and we haven't been impressed before. And yet, by the end of the story, what is profoundly clear is that Jesus Christ, though he will be rejected 
by many of the Jewish people, still has the power to overcome even those objections and still has the power to save and draw people to himself and bring people to faith like this nobleman and bring him to a response of trusting in him. It's a great picture of faith when we don't always see what it is that we're hoping for, that we're anticipating, that we would like to see. Near the end of John's Gospel, you, you probably remember the account of Jesus appearing to the disciples after his resurrection, and he appears to all but one, right? Thomas. And Thomas comes back after Jesus has departed, the resurrected Jesus, and all of the disciples you can imagine here are, what, ten of your closest allies and friends telling you how vividly they have seen Jesus, and what is Thomas's reaction? I can't believe it unless I see it, he says in John chapter 20. Unless I can put my finger there into that nail wound, unless I can put my hand in his side, unless, unless I see it, and he's right there, I can't believe it. And what happens? Eight days later, Jesus appears again. And Thomas sees Jesus, and he believes. And what's Jesus' answer to him at that point? John 20, 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Therein lies the call for you and I this morning that I think comes out of this passage as well in John 4. If you are a person who is considering Jesus Christ, if you have thought about Jesus, you've perhaps contemplated the gospel, and maybe you've sort of taken the attitude of, yeah, I sort of I get some of it, but he's going to have to prove himself. He's going to have to show me something. He's going to have to make it clear. Can I submit to you that this morning God's word is making it profoundly clear to you that God is calling you to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ? Rather than putting God to the test, trust in what he says in his word. God's word says in Romans 10, 9, and 10 that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It is a call to believe the gospel. This passage here is just a great illustration to us. Yeah, you can wait for something. You can be watching for something where you can take Jesus Christ at his word and believe he is who he says he is, that he is the sinless son of God who came to earth to stand in your place and mine to take our sin and be punished for it and, and, and to give back in return forgiveness and life and hope because of his finished work and his death and resurrection. And if you're already trusting in Jesus Christ, then, then hopefully this passage is a tremendous reminder to you and I about taking Jesus at his word, about being willing to believe even when we cannot see. We are not only saved by faith, but the book of Hebrews says the just shall, what, live by faith. We walk daily by faith. We face trials and circumstances, some like the noblemen, maybe some not as severe, they vary sometimes, but we walk in difficult valleys in a world that is marred by sin. And so pain and death and sickness and hardships and broken relationships and trials and, and so much more will come our way. And it's in those moments when we can't see the healing, in those moments when we can't see where the new job will be when this one ends, which it's about to shortly, or we can't see that loved one, that, that spouse that we're estranged from, or that child, 
trust in Jesus Christ. We can't see and touch and hold the answer to whatever the problem is we're facing. It's in that moment that the Word of God calls us to respond back like that nobleman and say, okay, I believe you. can't see it, but if you've said it, I believe that it's true. It is in those moments when we can't touch or see the answer as much as we want to that the Word of God says, be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. It's one thing to be still and to rest in God when things are good, when all is well. It's one thing to believe that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose when indeed, as far as we define it, all things seem to be working together for good. It's one thing to believe that Scripture says that that testings will come, nothing is unusual, it's all common to man, but with the testing, God will provide a way to endure up under it. It's one thing to believe that when the testings don't seem all that hard, or, or there's someone else's testings, and we can encourage them in that way. But it is another to live by a faith that is not just circumstantial or conditional, but a faith that responds and says, Take God at his word. If he says that all things work together for good for them that love him and are called according to his purpose, I'm going to rest in that. If he says there's a way to endure up under this trial, then I am going to trust that by God's grace he will enable me. Whether it is to walk through the valley of the shadow of death or to deal with a a fractured relationship or some kind of hardness that we're facing. In all of that, we are able as believers in Jesus Christ to face those things with hope, to believe the word of God, and to believe that there is a powerful God who is accomplishing his purpose. We're called to respond just like this nobleman, to bring our sorrows and trials to him and to cry out to him by all means. This is not, this is not advocating a sort of human toughness. I can endure this. I think we're exactly like that nobleman. We plead and we cry just like David does in the Psalms. And ultimately, we rest it with the Lord, and we trust in his power and his grace. The same Savior that this nobleman came to believe in is the one who urges you and I to come and to live by faith and to trust him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, for a hope that is in him that surpasses anything in this life. Father, you know the The folks in this room, I pray first that if there is anyone who is not believing, trusting at this moment in Jesus Christ for salvation, might might this be the day when your word would profoundly speak and your spirit would apply it to their lives, that they would not seek further to, to test you or to try you in some way, but that they would come to believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior and he is the one to be trusted and believed in and that his death and resurrection are sufficient for forgiveness and for life. And Father, for myself and my brothers and sisters here, as we venture into a new week with all sorts of challenges ahead, we pray for the grace to live by faith. Help us to be people who who believe your word, who take it seriously, who see your promises and, and, and don't hold to them in a skeptical way, needing to see more but who believe what you say and who trust you and know that you indeed are God. Thank you for the 
the work you have done in sending your son to be our savior for the abiding comfort of your presence through your spirit. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.